Case file number 5.06. Internet of Threats. Observed by Agent Grenshaw. Agent Grenshaw. Still working on this Gibson thing. No, Chief. You, you gotta give me more time. Have you even listened to the recordings? It's like an encyclopedia of this hacker stuff. One of them just keeps going on and on about everything that ever went wrong on the internet. No. He, nobody knows this kind of crap. He's obviously up to no good. Yeah, the one called Hackalope. No. How is it not illegal? The information is dangerous. Oh, and, and the other one. The other one. Y- Ymir. No, he's always going on about everything the CIA and FBI did wrong. All the wiretap stuff, all the crazy projects. How does he know? We already know he's infiltrated NASA, and I am this close to catching him skipping leg day. Now just ask yourself, Chief, what would J. Edgar Hoover do? Come, Chief, all I need is more time. Sooner or later they're going to slip up and I will catch them. Hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. Hey, Ymir. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, network printers at your office? I think so. It's been a long time since I actually was there, but I think we do. So this is an episode about the Internet of Things and the first Internet of Things hack that I ever heard about. And unfortunately, I wasn't actually able to find reference to this, but I know for sure that I heard this story in like the 2004 range, maybe a year in either direction, Okay, was that this hacking group LSD had compiled hacking tools to run on the jet direct cards for the HP laser jets at the time. Okay. Now, there is a hacking group confirmed named Late Stage of Delirium, which is a Polish hacking research group that was active at the time, has continued to be active. I uh, think the most recent article that I saw directly referring to them was in 2017. And they may be okay. more active than that. I didn't put a ton of effort into making sure that they were up. So it might be them, but I couldn't actually find any reference to this. Mm, okay. But I know that I heard this at you know contemporaneously around 2004. So at the very least, people were thinking about it at the time. So this was like a full blown um, hack on the printer, or was this? Because remember there was uh, there was a quote unquote hack. Um, I think like four or five years ago that would just put Doom on your printer. So this is a hack, and mm-hmm. the Doom on your printer thing is honestly kind of a a, a the end of the rainbow on this stuff. It's just it's not malicious. But to the principles of what some of the stuff we're going to talk about, somebody repurposed the system, the Internet of Things system on the printer in order to use it for things that it was not originally intended to do. Right, right. Now, eventually we're going to talk about right to hack, right to repair. That's actually (laughs) a big, a big part of episode two Mm -hmm. of Internet of Things. But, you know, you own the printer. If you want to put Doom on it, you should be able to, right? Exactly. (laughs) But... Again, but part of what we're going to talk about here is that it lets people who don't have authorized access do more than just pop your box. Mm. It lets them into your network. Uh, right, yeah, yeah. Now, I, I will say that at the time I had done some vulnerability, uh, I was doing vulnerability uh, management at around 2004, 2003 era where we had SQL Slammer Worms and is an industry and I was one of the people in my little corner of things, doing vulnerability management at the time. And I had messed around with 
the security of the jet direct cards. And I'm pretty sure this was plausible at the time. <laughs> but when I did look into printer hacking, a lot of the stuff that I found was published around 2011. Okay. Okay. And it comes from easy stuff because if you have direct access to the, the printer port 631, I believe it is, uh, or the LPD part, you mm -hmm. can print directly to it. And in fact, there was somebody who made a thing that would uh, look for printers on a network and print directly to them a support uh, PewDiePie <laughs> flyer <laughs> on printers. Um, That's great. Yeah, which is silly, but could potentially lead to something like the old school uh, um, impractical joke, you know, ma malicious faxing somebody a whole bunch of blank uh, black pages mm, yeah, kind yeah. of attack. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> toner ain't cheap, baby. No, it is not. Uh, but you could also, like I had heard about the late stage of delirium things, run code from there. Mm -hmm. Running code like an MAP zombie or something directly on the device. Okay, um, that's yeah. part of the toolkit, uh, the printer exploitation toolkit. There's a whole wiki on this at uh, www.hacking-printers.net. Interesting. Okay. There've been there've been some talks about this, but the world of printer hackery is actually relatively well explored at this point. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you, even back at that point in the 2003-2004 era, one of the things we did have to deal with was some of the big moppiers, the multifunction copier printer. Mm -hmm. that were you know multi tens of thousands of dollar jobs that did medium to large company full like real world print jobs right yeah 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 they had like a windows nt4 system under the hood mm -hmm. that they didn't really tell the printer people about and we'd scan mm -hmm. them and just pop them open <laughs> right yeah and yeah, they'd be yeah. like you need to patch this there's a computer here <laughs> <laughs> and it should be noted that Microsoft, for a long time, and they continue to do so, make a stripped-down version of Windows. They used to call it Windows CE, but now they're kind of versions of the most recent version of Windows that are essentially full versions of the of the, of the operating system, or mm. you know, eighty percent versions of the operating system right, used yeah. for kiosks and other systems that are not computers, but pretty close yeah yeah i think we talked about in the atm episode yes, um, yes. some of them running windows nt or windows and mm -hmm. was it me or like maybe 95 or something like that yeah well it might have been ce might have been might have been mm. 95 I, I i hope just for the folks who had to deal with it sick it wasn't me because millennium oh, yeah. edition was was mm. just a train wreck yeah i never i never even used millennium edition but i've heard horror stories i worked extensively with windows 98 and mm. honestly 98 se was very good for what it was, which was a really sophisticated user interface on top of DOS. Um, right, yeah. But, and at the time, I kind of bucked the movement over to the NT5 derivative Windows 2000 stuff. But I have since learned that I was wrong. <laughs> and the NT multi-user operating system architecture was much better for security let we wouldn't be able to do the job that we're doing today if it weren't for the migration over. If we if they had continued to run the DOS underpinnings, we'd be in mm. bigger trouble. Right. Yeah. 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 And, you know, actually, uh, on the IoT side, I would say that we're probably saved to some degree by the fact that the underpinnings of these things are Linux or the 
NT type Windows operating systems for a lot of the stuff that we're talking about, because yeah. it would be even worse if it was on an old DOS derivative base. Right, which is saying something that yeah. could be even worse. Yeah. So what is IoT? The Internet of Things. The S stands for safety. Yes. Um, there's no S in that in the acronym. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there's something to be said there. So and I'd already heard this story, but I, but I, if I hadn't read the the Wikipedia article, I would have I would have not seen this. And this is the inevitable part of the episode where if I don't go over the thing that was in the intro of the uh, Wikipedia article, somebody's going to yell at me. Section of the podcast. Right. Um, so, 1982 at Carnegie Mellon University, some students hooked up a Coke machine to the internet. Ooh, okay. And what what it was looking for was to see if the cans that were in it were cold. Mm, okay. Because when the Coke cans got restocked, they were warm, right? Right. Yeah, you yeah. want to go and spend their money on oh, a warm, warm Coke. Coke because it costs the same as a cold Coke if you just uh-huh. wait it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Makes sense. So this is in 1982. And this is like ARPANET days, as we've talked about previously, when computers weren't easy, were, were uh, still several thousand dollars of 1980s money. So uh-huh. I didn't look into it because it wasn't like super important to, to what we were talking about, but I wonder how they executed it, whether it was like a lead coming out of another, an otherwise existing computer, or if they mm. scrounged up a computer or something for it. Yeah. Yeah. But the term internet of things, and this is widely accepted. I actually looked at a bunch of different sources for this um, because some of the first couple of things I found disagreed, but consensus is definitely this in 1985. Peter T. Lewis gave a speech to the Congressional Black Caucus and the FCC. In, the, in his speech, he used the term Internet of Things. Okay. Now, he's a co-founder of Cellular One, and the predictions in his speech were largely on target. Mm, um, okay. So, like, very prescient, and this is in 85. Before we had an internet, he was talking about ubiquitous connectivity type stuff. Oh, damn. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, there was a paper on ubiquitous computing that kind of goes that went a little bit deeper into the technology side of this and what its implications in 1991 by uh, Mark Wisner. There was some subsequent stuff because we didn't really start having internet connected things, computers that aren't computers until early 2000s. Right, right, yeah. I mean, there was a Coke machine back in 82, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because New Coke was coming yeah. around uh, in a few years. Yeah. Um, but the era of things are computers that aren't computers. Computers that are devices. We had a bunch of embedded type systems mm-hmm. prior to that. And as always, how do I get this set of microchips to do certain things? Right, yeah. But as we got smaller and smaller, this pushed us to system on a chip but that's where we're at right now, where you can get the whole processor memory, everything you need to run basically a computer on one chip. Right, right. Yeah. It wasn't quite where we started, but we were close. We were like on the precipice of that. And then the utility of it pushed us to this world of, of, of commodity system on a chip. Right, right. So we have a system on a chip that is probably more powerful than a lot of the applications. And we have... General software, whole operating system, Linux embedded operating system mm-hmm. that we can put on top of it. 
And while this is probably overkill for the actual computing you need in a lot of cases, it gives you flexibility. And it means that you don't have to get the, do the specialized circuit on-chip development. You can right. just write software just like you're writing any other Unix software, or mostly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So those two things are critical in allowing us to have an Internet of Things. Not just that they're connected to the Internet, but mm. also making it so that they're so alike that we have the ability to treat at least classes of things together in terms of the work that we do to either develop them or hack them. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, if everything was its own kind of thing, this would be a less deep well to explore. Mm -hmm. Right. But the last piece, the last leg of that stool, I think is super important, which is the idea of ubiquitous network connectivity. Mm -hmm. That's what takes us from basically embedded computers to an actual internet of things. Right, right. Because that, that's the internet part. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of need that. Yeah. So network access comes in a couple of different ways. The first one I was going to talk about is cellular. And, and the thing that I meant to look up is I remember a report of, a, of something where, where, where they uh, prepaid the SIM chip and they put it in a device. Okay. And people were breaking them open, grabbing the SIM chip out, putting it in their phone. Oh, nice. <laughs> and using the, the, the prepaid cellular stuff to, in order to just use their own cellular yeah, hell yeah. phone traffic, which is mm. awesome. But you have to understand that this is probably, A, not what they intended, but also a, probably a cost issue. Yeah. You're, I mean, the manufacturer totally blame, to blame for this, for not anticipating something like this, because it mm. seems pretty easy but they probably sold the device as a loss leader mm, yeah with the expectation that the interaction with the service or the data that they could sell from gathering it would offset the cellular charges yeah exactly so people who got these devices probably didn't pay for the cellular access as part of getting the device <laughs> yeah um another thing is wi-fi um with all of our internet connected devices, we've dealt with that. One of the things that's, that has enabled that is the WPS enrollment system for devices. So you can actually enroll devices in your secure Wi-Fi Wi implementation without having a keyboard to type in a password. Right, yeah. And then there's an idea that people talk about more than I think it occurs, but I think it that we're going to see this more and more as soon as folks really figure it out, which is the idea of a mesh or a, sometimes it's called a fog. Mm. And that idea is that all of the devices that you have connect to one another based on proximity mm. and they can do certain operations. The best description of this that I found was talking about smart power meters. Okay. So they talk to one another all locally and it allows them to transit updates peer-to-peer -peer because they're only going to be so distant from one another in, in a given like development and neighborhood. Right. Yeah. Yeah. One of the guys at IO active did a presentation in, I didn't find this one, but I was at it and it was probably in the 2010 to 2012 range. Mm -hmm. And it was definitely a researcher at IO active uh, who looked at the power beater peer-to-peer -peer thing and did one of the things that was kind of a common IOT attack vector mm -hmm. where 
he got the firmware. I believe he got the firmware by listening over the wire for a peer-to-peer replication. Okay, yeah. Like he didn't hack the device, he hacked the, the network. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but he got the binary and messed with it and created his own binary package and then incremented the I'm more recent than you telltale on there because they weren't signed packages at all. Ooh, okay. And he was able to upload it to a meter and have that essentially infect every other power meter in, in the neighborhood. Oh, damn. He, he had some like down looking um, maps of, of the infection over 24 <laughs> hours. It was pretty crazy. <laughs> damn. Did it say like what he modified on the binary? I don't recall. Hmm. In fact, I'm, I'm kind of kicking myself for the not researching this section as much because I was like, oh, right. I went to that talk and I'm just going <laughs> off the top of my head right now. It's like, I know it was IO active because Dan Kaminsky had only a couple of years previously become the chief technical officer there. So basically I was trying to go to anything that IO active was presenting. Yeah. I mean, I would only assume given power meter something to lower or eliminate your usage. Yeah, well, I mean, there's lots of things that that you could potentially do with it, but that would be the obvious benefit you directly thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So often included with Internet of Things, and I think it's a very important, um, an important piece, but it's not kind of in the realm of all of the computers that aren't computer stuff that we're talking about today. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to make sure I mention it is RFIDs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. For anybody who doesn't know, well, actually, uh, so I'll I'll ask one of my, I think, probably notorious by now trap questions to you. (laughs) Can you describe to me how an RFID works? Uh, I can't because I haven't really done much of RFID. Like the only RFID that springs to mind are the Apple tags. The Apple tags are more complicated than the simplest case, which is what I'm going to describe now because they are powered. They do have their own batteries in them. Mm, Okay. Or at least that's the way that's as I recall it, that they are powered. But um RFIDs, the simplest case, are not uh powered. Uh or at least they don't have their own power source. Mm, okay. What they are is an antenna, mm-hmm. chip in the middle, and a transmitter. And when you send it the right signal, the right frequency, it's enough energy that it picks up from the antenna because radio waves are energy, right? Right. I mean, microwaves can do a number on you and they're not much different than radio waves of one band down. Mm-hmm. That energy is enough to power the chip to give a response. Let's say in a very simple thing, you have a, a query that's happening on a particular frequency. Okay. And the chip set, the chip responds with, hey, I'm responding and this is my number. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it gets the energy from, receives that, formats the answer, and then sends it out the transmitter. Mm-hmm. And it's just that simple. But that means that if you know the radio frequent, if you know the the the, uh, the magic incantation to hit it, it will respond with the same thing every time. Mm-hmm. Again, mm-hmm. this is the very simplest case. Right, right. So, I mean, Apple tags use Bluetooth, and I'm not sure if they use Wi-Fi. I actually need to do some reading on, on exactly how Apple tags work because because there's been some Apple tag hackery as well mm-hmm. uh, that's interesting might not worry into full episode but I, but I probably want to know because I know that there are people that have uh done um beeperectomies of apple tags oh really so that oh yeah mm. yeah there's a, there's a whole thing of not just people having instructions for it but people selling them hmm. or at least there were at one point so that you could stealth 
AirTag, whatever you wanted mm-hmm. in a very creepy way. Mm, yeah, yeah, that was my first thought when I learned about them. Was, oh, these are going to be used yeah. by creeps. AirTags are interesting in an IoT ID kind of way because if you're doing, and this is what a lot of our of the uh, very simple RFIDs are used for, is inventory control. You do a scan for all the inventory you want on like a pallet, and instead of counting each thing individually, you look for the RFIDs that re- that respond and what's you're supposed to have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So you need the the device that does the transmission close enough to and and the receiver close enough to get all the information. Right. What Apple did was they utilized what in essence is a nationwide sensor network because of the relative ubiquity of iPhones. Mm-hmm. So they took that and some already existing radio frequency stuff, Bluetooth and Wi-Fi, and they put devices that could listen and transmit on those frequencies enough to basically your phone is, is listening in and then talking over your uh, internet connection back up to the cloud. And that's how people find, find air tags when things get lost. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. But again, I'm not absolutely certain because I haven't looked into it, but I'm pretty confident that they are powered because they vibrate. And oh, okay, yeah. vibration is quite uh, power intensive and mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to power that off of uh, off of radio frequencies. Or if you can, I have a completely screwed up understanding of, 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 uh, of electrical engineering, <laughs> which isn't impossible, but I'm not betting that way. <laughs> so my last point from, from the Wikipedia article that I want to make sure to hit is you're talking about the internet of things being the point when there were more devices on the internet than people. Okay. Cisco systems did a survey of this to try and figure out where and when that might happen. Mm. It occurred between 2008 and 2009. Oh, really? Shit. And the current ratio is about two to one mm. things to people. Damn. Okay. <laughs> At least based on the Wikipedia article, I will admit that's another one that I didn't go and look for sourcing on mm-hmm, right welcome to hacking the gibson where we read the inner the the wikipedia article for you um, <laughs> you're welcome um, well let's see if we can dig a little deeper into some of this stuff <laughs> um i think OWASP specifically had you know the 10 things that you worry about with uh iot security you have the physical access to the device and that's an iot thing that is a ubiquitous problem with the with IoT is that right. people have to have it in their hands. You cannot maintain physical controls over the widgets that you, that you want populating the internet right, if you're right. an IoT developer. So if you don't have good security practices of the device itself, you're probably not going to maintain full security of what's going on. Right. Yeah. So going back to the Doom thing, if Somebody can upload unsigned firmware. They can upload kind of whatever program that they want. Mm-hmm. And how you make sure it's signed firmware requires you to have things like a trusted platform module and a public key infrastructure in order to do software signing. Right, yeah. Or internet validation or something like that. You need to build that in. And a lot of devices over the years have it. Mm. And um, in terms of secure software firmware, if you go and you look at the DEF CON IoT Village, uh, some of the, they've got a bunch of talks about how to get started in 
in Internet of Things hacking. And one of the first big talks that they had was very much about this, where the speaker was able to grab the firmware off the box, the web interface. I don't even remember what the thing was, but it had a web interface that allowed you to upload or download firmware. Mm. So he downloaded the firmware, unpacked it, replaced the password that was in the password file because it was just Linux <laughs> with his own password. Oh, and Bob's your uncle. Nice, nice. I mean, it was just that simple. If they can get to the file system, they can rewrite the credentials, even if it's a hash, if it's a known system. And part of the what makes the IoT work is that you have ubiquitous systems. Mm-hmm. Right. And they just need to be able to make the same hash as you. They don't need to be able to crack the hash. It's not important. Now, there's some insecure network services stuff. Uh, you talked about Barnaby Jack and his work with the pacemaker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that has to do with the fact that network access to the device wasn't secured. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We might go deeper into that. Barnaby plays a significant role in, the, in part two of, of, of IoT. But I, might, <laughs> I don't know how much I'm going to get into the pacemaker stuff. Um, because the main story is kind of juicy, mm-hmm. um, orange <laughs> juicy, if that's a hint. Um, but the fact is that there aren't a lot of great techniques for keeping secrets from determined hardware, hardware hackers that have access to the hardware. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That makes sense. And yeah. So like you actually either have to have external verification mm-hmm. using the internet or, Again, things like trust platform tamper-resistant mechanisms for keeping various credential mechanisms. Yeah, yeah. Although you've done a ton of work with YubiKeys, we've all had smart cards. Mm-hmm. Those things are becoming easier and easier to get access to. Yeah, um, yeah they are. And uh, uh, I'm certain, although like, this is another thing that I feel like I should have looked up, just occurring to me to look up, but I'm sure that those systems on chips are now becoming available with trusted platform modules. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know if we've talked too much about it, but a trusted platform module and a smart card chip do pretty much the same job mm-hmm. from a credential security point of view. So and there's insecure network services. Well, I don't know if this is specifically a thing to talk about that, that, that is specifically an insecure network service, but it's a great, it's a great example. <laughs> in 2016, two apartment buildings in uh, La, uh, La P- Penina Ra- L-A-P-P-E-E-N-R-A-N-T-A. I'm, my brain is switching everything around because it's Finnish. Um, mm, it's, a Finnish okay. it's a Finnish city. Yeah, um, and the language is made up. So, a Panera. Anyway, two apartment buildings mm. had their HVAC, their heat completely knocked out for like a week plus. Damn. And it was done through a denial of service attack. Mm. The attackers ran a distributed denial of service attack on the DNS server that the systems used. Mm, okay. And during the boots process, when the system couldn't get name resolution, mm-hmm. it would reboot every, it would reboot oh, and it would sh- do this every five minutes. Shit. Okay. Now from what it said, some of the residential units had the same problem, but mm-hmm. if, as soon as you disconnected them from the internet, they were fine. Right, right. Like they said, I don't have an internet connection mm-hmm. and defaulted to a more safe state. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. But lack of security and lack of good fallback caused a significant outage and a real world consequence to a 
relatively unsophisticated distributive de denial of service. Attack. Yeah. And there's uh, insecure web interface. This comes up a lot, but I thought that this one was a, was a pretty good one. There was a SQL injection attack found on Philips MRI systems that led to three reported vulnerabilities. <laughs> okay. And this was relatively recent. This is like 2021 mm -hmm. um, that these CVAs came out. And there's patient data in there. I can tell you when I worked at, the ho at a hospital, they had like these unpatched NT4 systems. Oh, really? I think we might have mentioned this before when we were talking about like legacy systems. And our solution was actually to get a small firewall and mm -hmm. essentially isolate them on the network so that people couldn't get to them. Was this the, the only web server running on these devices? Because I've seen in the past, some devices will have like the web server for, mm -hmm. you know, you as the user to log into set everything, but then they'll have an admin web server, even just running on a different, like, um, you know, completely well, different web server yeah. and like different port and everything uh, that's completely unsecure as well. Um, and you don't know about it. Those details weren't in the reporting that I saw. Mm -hmm or in the notes that, that came from Phillips, which were mostly, we take security very seriously. This mm. was a vulnerability. Sorry about that. <laughs> and I read more than a few of the, I read a few more of those because the next thing is insufficient authentication or authorization. Mm. And this is another hard-coded credentials problem. They were disclosed in a couple of other Phillips systems that were used for patient monitoring. Mm, okay. There are various devices. I couldn't get a good explanation on exactly what these systems did, mm -hmm. but they allowed for remote code execution in addition to disclosure of patient data. And these were shared credentials across like multiple devices? Yes, these are hard-coded in-system credentials, which yeah. if you deploy network devices of mid to lower end uh, cost or, mm -hmm. well, actually, no, I shouldn't even say that because this is really common of, home devices for a really long time until some of the better end of things started having like uh, unique credentials that were shipped with the device. Yeah, yeah. Now they're like a sticker on it. But yeah. yeah. Or at least the, hey, as soon as you set this up, you have to change the password kind of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But lots of systems shipped with admin, admin, admin password or whatever, yep. and just stick with that and nobody changes them. Uh, there was a report I read for the last story here that said that as many as 15% of devices or routers never had their password changed. I find that low. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely low. I mean, like I have personally like just messing around like in a doctor's office or something or at a yeah. bar, logged into their uh, network stuff with admin, admin or password. And then been like, hey, you know, <laughs> you need to change this. Yes. It's like, I'll tell you what, I'll take, I'll take the copay and trade today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and there's privacy concerns. Now, internet-based cameras have been a problem for a long time. Um, some of the very early ones, the X25 cameras, you'd make a hole in your firewall, your home router, you'd be able to observe it from, from home. We talked about some of that in the internet scanning episode. Yeah. And you kind of know that you're trying to doing something when you're doing that because you have to go through some hoops to make that happen. Yeah. 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 What's worse in my mind is where you think you have some security built into the system. And in 2019, you probably, you might've heard about this, that about two dozen or so ring cameras were hacked and some things like, uh, like 
hackers were using the speakers in like a baby monitor to creep yep. out the kids and stuff like that. Yep, I remember reading that. Yeah. Well, that was done through credential reuse or credential stuffing. Mm -hmm. Somebody's credentials were compromised in another place. They used the same password and whoever got the data dump just went and tried to find every place that you might've used that email address and password. Ring also had another problem about the same time, a little bit before, where there was a Trojan third-party app to access your Ring camera. Mm -hmm. So the app itself was an insecure interface. I remember, um, I don't know if you'll talk about it, but there's, there's, I think there's still a website, but there used to be a website that was just populated with thousands and thousands of webcams that were uh, publicly accessible. No, I'm actually not going to end up talking about that mm -hmm. yeah. because, uh, to me, the big story I kind of wanted to talk about at the end of the of this first episode of Internet of Things is Mirai and its various derivatives. Mm, okay. Uh, did you ever deal with the Mirai worm at all? No, I guess I did. It was a big deal starting in around, around 2016. Okay. 2016, 2017. And the thing about it was that they had a very effective, very, very large, uh, widely populated botnet for distributed denial of service attacks. Now, how they got there was by infecting Internet of Things devices. They used various attacks, and there are several generations of, of, of the Mirai worm. And based on how things turned out, we're pretty sure that the original beast outlived its creators. <laughs> so... The original Mirai stuff would use, best I could tell, and I, I'm, I'm actually surprised at kind of how fragmented the research is on this, mm -hmm. or maybe I just didn't find the right explanation, but there's articles six ways to Sunday, but there were several generations, so it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what happened when. Right, yeah. Down to the exact technique. But we know that they used things like cross-site request forgery to get you to click on a link that then made a request to your router using the default credentials mm, okay, yeah. <laughs> to uh, compromise your router. Mm -hmm. And then it would do things like uh, make holes using UPnP so that they could connect directly to your computer mm. <laughs> or run things directly on the routers. Nice. And in fact, they were so successful at spreading that there was another botnet uh, in the 2015-2016 timeframe while Mirai was in its spread uh, stage mm -hmm. that it outcompeted. It actually repopped the boxes that you bought <laughs> popped. And the folks that were running Mirai were taunting in hacker forums, the Qbot guys. <laughs> so they ran some really substantial de distributed denial of service attacks. Mm -hmm. DynaDNS, a bunch of major websites were hit through it. This is one of the things that Cloudflare wrote up quite a bit on, on like dealing with the volume of traffic coming from the botnet. Right, yeah. Things like that. Mm -hmm. So there was three guys, Prash, Ja, uh, Josiah White, and Dalton Norman, between 20 and 21 and 22 years old. Uh, they reached an agreement to serve five years of probation, according to the Department of Justice, uh, pay about $125,000 in restitution, and do a combined... Uh, 2,500 hours of community service, which is basically a year of community service. Like a normal person working a regular full-time job is about 2,000 hours a right. year. They were given a lenient sentence because the government said that uh, 
the defendant's cooperation was extensive and exceptional and warrants a substantial reduction in sentence. And this is from the DOJ prosecutors because they did a lot of cooperation with law enforcement once caught for both law enforcement and security researchers Mm -hmm. to kind of clean up the mess and make the mess better. But the thing is, before they were brought in, they released their source code out into the world. And because they released their source code out in the world, we got a lot of variants that that went through a couple more years of malware. And Mm -hmm. they would incorporate new vulnerabilities, some of which were to exploiting kind of lower and lower security routers from the outside, mm-hmm. which is fun. Um, <laughs> so the age of the router came and the whole idea of scan the internet, find an endpoint that you can actually talk to. Right. Yeah. Like that world, there's old wind nuke attack, which is probably a really good example of this. Mm. So wind nuke worked because and this was back again in the Windows like 95-ish days, Windows 95, 98 days. The handler for the number of open connections that hadn't been created as, an, as a state mm-hmm. was like one byte long. They only had a buffer of about seven or eight connections. Okay. So what Windu did was if you could find the end IP, mm-hmm. you could just hit them with a certain number, with a very small number of connection requests mm-hmm. and you, and they had to reboot the system. It wasn't remote, remote code execution, but it would just jam the stack. Oh, damn. Okay. Uh, and this is a time period where, where it was a little bit easier also to find the IP address that, you're try, that you were trying to hit. <laughs> um, and like uh, an attack like that, even if systems were vulnerable to it, everybody's behind what we call a router nowadays, mm-hmm. which is yeah. kind of a router, kind of a firewall. Mm. It's about the least you can be of those things to be on the internet. And I think that it was a massive move forward in security to be able to have those things at the price point that they could be in every household that had an internet connection. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, they didn't need the level of of, of functionality that that we sometimes demand at the the enterprise level. Mm -hmm. So I'm not slamming it for being low functioning. I will slam the the, the vendors that didn't do a good job of security. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But the devices themselves do the job they are designed to do, which is great. Um, And in fact, things like UPnP have happened that have done some really kind of sophisticated stuff with connection management that actually forked the world of like enterprise firewall and, and home firewall. But since we had those, the local network stuff became a little bit easier to deal with Mm -hmm. because back in those days, back in like the late nineties, early two thousands, you know, connecting to somebody's C share on their home PC through the internet was possible under more circumstances than you might than 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 I think people were realized. Yeah, I mean that's crazy to me, but <laughs> but you know, in that world, you could connect out and hit things, and it wasn't really the fault of the folks on the other end. It was mm-hmm. that was right. just the inter- way the internet worked. When mm-hmm. we moved to router world, and you think you have a router and you're fine, maybe you saved a couple of bucks by not buying the name brand thing, or maybe it wasn't available to you because mm-hmm. you know not every places in the U.S. with a big box store within five miles of you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, you have these devices that got hacked from the outside. 
And that was, to me, that's, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things about the internet of things that I think is difficult is that it's hard to have a view to the quality of the device that you're getting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And network segmentation of your home network is not a thing that's common. No, no. I mean, I mentioned to you that I've done it here, mm-hmm. um, not as extensively as I want to, but like the PCs are on one network and basically all of the handheld devices and IoT type devices are on a different SSID. Yeah, yeah I did the same thing. Uh, someone else's house when I set up their network was IoT on one, um, PCs on the other. Yeah, but that's an uncommon thing to do, even though a lot of uh, going back to some of those like home level devices are capable of it. Like you don't have to spend extra money to be able to do those things. But a lot of folks don't do that, even if they do know how to do it. Mm-hmm. It's not a common thing to do. Yeah, it's um, like the, the little extra time. Yeah, you know, Most people are just like, yeah, not worth it. Like whatever. Well, also one thing about that, that my wife has complained about once or twice is that she has an Apple computer and she has these Apple devices and they're not on the same network and they're not on networks that can talk to one another. So some functions haven't worked exactly right between the two of them. Now you can still do a lot of stuff by leveraging the cloud, but some of the magic, it just works interactions doesn't just work if you start putting network (laughs) barriers in between them. Yeah, yeah, go figure. And I guess I'm going to give a little bit of preview of of what's coming up, which is of of the next IoT episode. So Barnaby Jack, in addition to messing with pacemakers also did some work with insulin pumps and he wasn't the only one. Mm. And this is a really interesting story on right to hack, right to repair industry consolidation and American health. Right. There's a bunch of stuff in here. The good guys aren't the good guys and the bad guys aren't the bad guys. Mm. Maybe the good guys are the bad guys and maybe the bad guys are the good guys. I'm not sure, (laughs) but I can't wait to tell the story. Did you have anything on on uh, any particular experiences with Internet of Things that you wanted to? I have never really used many IoT things. I think the only IoT device I've really ever used is um, I used to have a Nest thermostat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and like the new place I just moved into has kind of a smart thermostat-y sort of thing. There, mm-hmm. I brought my Nest with me to like multiple mm-hmm. houses and I've just never, I've never even felt like the need to like plug it in, hook it up. The only reason I even got it in the first place was the one apartment that I lived at had like an old, like 1980s Honeywell thermostat that still had mercury. mercury in it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and so I was like, yeah, I, this is kind of a piece of shit. I don't want this. I'll upgrade to a Nest because it was like, I think they were on sale for like 50 bucks or something like that. Oh, and, that's um, a great price for one of those, even, mm-hmm. even early on. Yeah. I mean, I just put a straight programmable in at around that time. Um, and just putting it on a schedule, a thermostat on a schedule saved me something like 20% of my bills. Yeah, yeah, I, I love the like, fact that like... It make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, if no one's home, yep. you don't need the AC. Like, you know, obviously I have pets, but they don't need it, like, you know... As much, yeah. Like I do. Like, I'm a, I'm a polar bear, so I need my air conditioning really high. <laughs> well, I mean, that brings to the thing that I didn't have a lot of great examples for, but is one of the things that people worry about that one of the aspects of IoT do to worry about, which is the security of the cloud service. Mm, yeah. Because a lot of devices connect to the cloud, a lot of so part of the value proposition for the application provider is that they get all this extra information. 
and it's not even necessarily malicious in the case of the nest they see how people use their their thermostats and they get to big data that even if they anonymize it yeah yeah exactly and like in you know there there's a benefit you know because you get to see that data too and see like okay like during these time periods or whatever like my usage peaked in certain ways like how does that correlate to like what i was doing and whatnot but i, I don't know like maybe i'm just old but like a lot of the features still like the the smart fridges that will like notify you if you're running low on like milk or something i'm like i, I can also open the fridge and see that like <laughs> yeah well the internet of th- that particular ask the the my my fridge telling me that the the internet connected fridge i think that's a less value proposition but i'll tell you i have a traeger grill and one of the things that i like best about it is mm. that i can set a temperature for it and I can put a probe in it that connects to the same thing. And I can get, I can see it on the app. I can run the timer directly from the app. Uh So I don't have to babysit my grill for a, because it's basically a smoker. It can be some long jobs. Like, you know, you put something in for four plus hours. You don't want to be out on the deck the whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Something like that. Like, yeah, I I definitely do agree. Like, cause I love grilling and like that Mm -hmm. is like, can you remote? start it as well i can't remote start it but i mm. can change the temperature mm, okay so if, if i want to do a long slow cook and i see the temperature going up too fast or i think that it's not going up fast enough although mm-hmm. that's dangerous your human brain is not as smart as you think it is <laughs> <laughs> um you can adjust the temperature mm. uh, on the fly and obviously because it's all electrically fired and everything it's a lot more precise than charcoal now charcoal and propane can get a lot hotter and they have their upside. So I'm not getting into a religious fight about this, but <laughs> I do appreciate the things that I can get from doing some low and slow stuff that, I, that I've found personally difficult to pull off with a propane or charcoal grill, possibly because of my short attention span. Yeah. The only other thing I could think of like that I can see active benefit is obviously like security cameras, like a ring or something like that. To, I'm usually just in my room on my computer. So having a camera that can like look outside. So if the doorbell rings or something, I know if it's a package being delivered or it's just a random solicitor and like, you know, does it, does it warrant me getting up to walk? Yeah. And that's good. And I, and there's, and there's a ton of industrial and commercial uses for this stuff. I mean, I know that I've certainly heard about thing about things like uh, um, losing a refrigerator full of uh, stock at a restaurant before. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. it is trivial nowadays to incorporate something that connects to the Wi-Fi that you're probably running anyway at the <laughs> restaurant mm-hmm. and getting you straight telemetry on your stuff. And like, I've done enough cloud work to know, hey, I could do that. I could have it report temperatures on a regular basis. If I don't get a report of temperature or uh, it deviates too much, I can send a text message. And this is me coding. So like somebody who's actually good at it could do this easily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you raise a good point there. Um, I don't run a restaurant. I haven't worked in a restaurant in like years and years and years, but it is pretty much equivalent to, you know, we have SNMP traps for our network devices. Mm-hmm. Like if exactly. something goes wrong, it's just basically an SNMP trap for your fridge. Um, Cause you yep. know, that's, that's a lot of money that you are possibly going to lose if something goes wrong. So why not secure well, it? Maybe not so much for, for a uh, residential fridge, but a commercial fridge, that can, mm-hmm. that's cheap insurance. Yeah, 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 exactly. Find out about new episodes at r slash Hacking the Gibson on Reddit and support the podcast by contributing at the Wikimedia Foundation or Electronic Frontier Foundation.